Good evening, everyone. And welcome to all who are gathered here in the uh, cathedral. And also our friends uh, who are watching on Salt and Light and on YouTube and through live streaming in a particular way, a, a greeting to uh, the people in uh, St. Joseph the Worker Parish in Oshawa and St. Deborah the Confessor Parish in Toronto. This evening, we are going to be meditating upon a passage uh, from the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse. Apocalypsis, apocalypse is just a Greek word for revelation. The unveiling, not the unveiling of political secrets or mysteries like that, the unveiling of God's will in history, which is ultimately based upon the triumph of the Lamb of God upon the throne and the defeat of all of the forces of evil. Jesus is Lord, that is our great song of victory. And so the Apocalypse is a marvelous but somewhat confusing book. It's confusing because it came out of a particular historical period and situation of persecution and of seduction. Those were the two dangers that the church faced around the year 95 in what we now call Turkey, the western coast of Turkey. It's those days it was called Asia, not the whole province of Asia with China and things like that, but that province was called Asia, the Roman Empire. It was a place where the Christians were beginning to flourish. And there were a series of cities along a road, a kind of a ring road, sort of like uh, the 401 or something like that in Ontario. And so the letters of the churches in the apocalypse are sent from one to another of these cities down the road. It would be sort of like the letter to, I don't know, it would be like uh, Cornwall, uh, Oshawa, Toronto, Guelph, Guelph, of certainly Guelph, my hometown, Kitchener, Woodstock, London, Windsor, that kind of a thing. It's a, it's a longer road. And the experience, the reality of the apocalypse is that St. John was exiled to the island of Patmos because of his fidelity to the faith, as were so many people who are being persecuted. To this day, we have many people persecuted. And he was off there, and on a Sunday, he says the Kiriakahem, or the, the, the day of the Lord, he had a vision of the glory of the Lord, which takes up the first chapter of the book. And then he was sent the mission, given the mission, to send a message to the churches, the seven churches on the mainland. Though those seven is a perfect number, it means really all of the churches there are, but the seven churches, and there are seven specific ones down this road. And in them, we see ourselves. They were, you might call dioceses, I suppose, or large parishes, or whatever we might call them, communities of Christians. And St. John had obviously authority over all of them as a prophetic leader, as essentially the bishop, although each one of them might have had a bishop there. He was sort of, you might say, even an archbishop. He was responsible for a region. And he was trying to strengthen them by God's grace to face the dangers. First of all, that they would be seduced by the attractiveness of a materialistic pagan society. You'll hear of people in these, these letters called the Nicolaitans. They're, they're bad. The Nicolaitans are the ones who want to give in to this sort of corrupt society, sell their soul to get ahead. But also, we hear in the, in the letters as well, the other danger was not that you would be seduced away from your faith by the Scarlet Woman or by Jezebel or things like that, but that you would be killed. In fact, there's, we'll hear of Antipas, is a, um, a, a Christian disciple. We don't know anything more about him. He was in Pergamum. But he was a martis, he called a martis, a witness. Very close to the word we mean martyr, a witness. And so the other danger facing the Christians was that they would be killed. They would die for their faith. And that today is a very real danger as well. There is no group on this planet that is more persecuted than Christians the most persecuted group by far, by huge amounts, on this planet. To this day, we are experiencing the world of the apocalypse. In this part of the world, we don't get that yet. We're more uh, being lured aside. This more we're the dangers, we become Nicolaitans, giving in to the corrupt society, rather than the, the more immediate danger that many of our brothers and sisters face, that they will shed their blood for Christ. So both of those dangers face us to this day. And what we do with the apocalypse is not to try to find, there are no predictions in the book about 
I don't know what Mr. Trump will do next or what Putin will do or things like that. People who try to use the apocalypse like a Ouija board are misusing it. The apocalypse speaks of the glory of the Lord, the fact we must resist the beast and not be seduced by the scarlet woman. We must be strong, faithful, serve the lamb and not the beast. We are the bride of Christ. That's what we're called to be. And so the message is repeated again and again and again in different ways, different angles. The apocalypse is like a diamond with many facets. You just keep turning, turning. We see the same message, serve the lamb and not the beast. We see that in many different ways again and again. And it's a glorious and marvelous book. I've always loved the apocalypse, <laughs> although it is something that maybe should be placed in a, in a case with a little hammer, only break open if you have read a, a good commentary on it, not one that's gonna to try to predict uh, elections and things like that, or identify who is the beast, is such and such a person, whatever, but rather go into a deeper understanding of it. When my bishop sent me away to study, uh, I spent several years at the Biblical Institute in Rome, and I had a great teacher, Father Uovani. And later on, when my bishop sent me to get a doctorate, I called up Father Vani and I asked whether he would be my teacher. And he agreed to do that. And so I came to him and I said, I would like to do a doctorate on the moral theology of the apocalypse. He said, too big, too big. I said, oh. He said, how about the moral theology of the last 16 verses of the apocalypse? And I thought, too small, too small. <laughs> but I spent two years studying 16 verses of the Bible, very slow reader, so there we are. And uh, that's ultimately, the, I did my, it's a bestseller. In fact, the movie writes, I'm fending off various people. Uh, it's um, Apocalypse 22, verses 6 to 21, as the focal point of moral teaching and exhortation in the apocalypse. A much greater scholar than me also studied under Ugovani, and that's Monsignor Robert Nuska. And uh, he did a marvelous doctorate on Christ and the apocalypse. And he's just now published it as a book. You can, I forget who the publisher is, but Monsignor Robert Nuska, Christ in the Apocalypse. It's really good. And so I highly recommend, if you want a really good book in the Apocalypse, get a copy of that. So we're going to be entering into a very small portion of the Apocalypse. And the part, not all the dragons and stuff, though I love the dragons and things. No, not the dragons and the fiery mountains, but simply the first two Chapter two this, this month, chapter three next month, and then I'm gonna end off this year with the section I did my doctorate on, Apocalypse 22, verses six to 21. Um, and so there'll be the, the letters, the, the, the book begins with a vision of the glory of the risen Lord, a highly symbolic vision. And then each of the pieces of the vision is taken and dropped into each of the seven letters to the churches that are being sent to those letters to the churches down the road. And each of the pieces is like a signature from Christ. It's wonderful. Different dimensions of our risen Savior. And then what, uh, we'll go through the, the letters, we'll be praying them, but what happens then is that we have a kind of a praise for the good in the church, criticism of what's bad, a threat, a punishment, unless you repent, and a promise if you will turn and turn and serve the Lord. But to appreciate those, we need to, first of all, encounter the vision of Christ our Lord. It's just wonderful. And just, here it is. And just try to, don't try to pick it apart, because if you think of a man standing with bronzed feet, fiery eyes, and a sword coming out of his mouth, it's kind of hard to talk that way. So it's, the images are, white hair represents wisdom. Um, the Ancient of Days. White hair represents that. Um, fire, white as snow, flames of fire is the vision of God. Um, the golden sash is his priestly majesty. The son of man with the long robe, he's the high priest, Christ our great high priest. Feet with burnished bronze, refined as in a fire, as, as in the furnace. He is, he's, he's not a, with feet of clay. He is one we can rely on. His voice like the sound of many waters. This was written on the island of Patmos. Believe me, if you're on the island of Patmos, all you hear is the roaring of the waves. So the majesty of God, 
In his right hand, he holds the seven stars. He's got the whole world in his hand. Seven in the apocalypse is always totality, perfection. As we have, for example, the seven days of the week, that same idea. So he's got everything in his hand. From his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. That is a sword that cuts like a two-edged sword. It is the word of God. His face like the sun shining in radiant glory in a full strength. So I'll read that first, and then we'll begin the... Well, let's start the prayer first, then we'll read that. But I'll mainly spend time on chapter 2 and the letters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us and help us to hear your word. Let it touch our hearts. Free us from all those things within us that are barriers, that block the pathway to our hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Away with all those distractions that turn us from you. the petty trash with which we fill up our hearts and our minds, the static that blots out your voice. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest, his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. But his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. It is our risen Lord. And he is there among the lampstands. For we are, each one of us, we're called to be part of the church, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the one who loves the Lord, and the light to the world, Lumen Gentium. That's the title of the book, of the, the section of Vatican II on the church. Lampstands, lampstands, that's what we're called to be, light to the world. So he's walking among the lampstands to see whether they're burning brightly or whether they flickered out. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So now he begins his visitation of the church in its wholeness, the seven churches, the individual particular ones. They speak for us all. In fact, what we see in them, we see in our own diocese and parish within our own hearts. But they are very particular as well, and sometimes when we hear the different things, it, it refers back to a specific thing in that actual church. And so, uh, through the church that is at the corner of Bond and Shooter, I say, you know, that's uh, the kind of thing you find. There are specific kind of references like that. That's why you do need a good commentary sometimes to fill it out a little bit, to see the circumstances. So, the message to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the angel of the church, the angel, we're not sure quite exactly, he says the, the mystery, the angel, the seven stars, or the angels of the seven churches. It could be, angel means, angelos means messenger, the messengers of the churches. So it could be the bishop, could be the leader of the church. Or it could be more, I think it's probably more likely, the angel is sort of the guardian angel, the spirit, the celestial guardian of each of the churches. It basically means to the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Christ is with us. He is risen in glory, but he is not distant from us. He's engaged with us. He speaks to us heart to heart. And he is to this day still walking among the seven lampstands to see the fullness of the church. That's why when we face the horrendous problems we face from outside, we think of the persecution of the Christians, we think of the corruption within the church at various levels, so distressing, so filling us with horror. We think of the ways in which the church is, is battling its way and is being bounced back and forth. The bark of Peter, the ship of Peter is bouncing up on the waves. And we sometimes wonder, as the apostles did in the, in the boat with the Lord, why, Lord, are you asleep? But he then calms the wind and the waves. He who did that is still walking among the seven lampstands, still guarding over the seven stars and the, the, the churches. He's with us always. We need to call out to him and pray, Lord, help us to be faithful, that the lampstand may burn brightly, the lamp may be bright and not flickering out, not be dead. And we'll see some dead churches here. That's not new. It goes right back to the start. We'll see betrayal. We'll see holiness, we'll see courage, we'll see loyalty, faithfulness, we'll see heresy, we'll see infidelity. A typical day in the life of the Catholic Church. There we are, all together. That's why I think it's appropriate that St. Peter's, the big arms, reach out. God did not create a sect, a tight little pure little sect of the saved. He, he gathered us together. We are to be the light of the world, we are to be purified, we are to be holy. The saints, that's what they were called in the Bible, the saints. But we are also sinners, like Peter. We're sinners, we stumble and fall. Three times he denied the Lord, and three times he had to be asked, do you love me? And sometimes our actions show the answer to that is no. That's why we have Lent, that's why we have the sacrament of reconciliation, because we need it. And so the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, when you're called in by the boss, you always worry, don't you? What he says, you're doing in many ways a very, very, very good job. We worry, oh dear, what's coming next? And that is a way of, you know, rebuking. It's, it's, the Lord uses it here as well. So he doesn't want to, Ephesus is going to get a pretty heavy hammering. But he starts off with pointing out the good. What, there's so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us that well behooves the rest of us not to be too critical. So, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ephesus was a big bustling metropolis, the biggest of the cities in the, of Asia. Rich, powerful, the center of culture, the media center of Asia a huge pagan temple right in the middle of it to Diana of the Ephesians. So the Christians were pretty good. They had to put up with a lot of problems. People got out to get them. And they had apparently among them phony apostles who were trying to lead them astray. Maybe they were like trying to let them become what he calls Nicolaitans. So you worship at the house church on Sunday, but you slip over to the temple of Diana on Monday. That's kind of what they were sort of tempted to do. And so, but they're good though. I know your works, your toil. And one thing that's really good, your patient endurance. These are not flighty Christians who are, uh, you know, here one day and gone the next. They're patient endurance. They're here for the long haul. They realize our faith is a marathon, not a sprint. So they're so good. 
They should be thankful to God for that. You cannot bear evil men, have tested those. They are resoundingly orthodox, solid as a rock, in the midst of a very corrupt, big, rich metropolis. So he says, good for you, I know that. And we should be thankful to God if we can imitate the Ephesians in that. We need to be clear in our faith, strong in our faith, steady in the midst of a pagan society. We need to be like the Ephesians in that. And then we have that horrible three-letter word, but. So now, it's like the train tracks, you know, pull the switch. Now the train's going in another direction, but. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. How often can we be faithful and true, zealous, orthodox, solid as a rock, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I think he's been reading some comboxes of Catholic blogs. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And so let's just in our own hearts, pray the Lord that we may be worthy of that praise he gives to Ephesus. May we be strong and faithful and true because the world that we're in is like that of Ephesus. But you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Love is not mentioned much in the apocalypse. That's not his strong point. It is in Paul and other places, and John, certainly. St. John of the Apocalypse is more into fidelity, strength, and courage, justice, truth. He does not stress so much love, but here he does. And he points out, you can have all these good things for which he praises Ephesus, but you do not have the love you had at first. Repent. They need to come back from that. What does it profit, each one of us, to be as good as Ephesus is if we do not have love? See how these Christians love one another. That's what it draws people to Christ, to this day as it did in the days of the early martyrs. You do not have that love. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent through the works that you did at first. So let's pray now that we might all be filled with faithful orthodoxy and do so with true love, gentleness, and a humble spirit. And unless they don't get the point of how important love is, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, I'm going to obliterate you unless you repent. That's the pastoral care of our Savior. The, light, the knife cuts to heal. This is the Lord speaking to his people. It's that important that we love. I will take away your lampstand. And indeed, I once had the privilege of traveling to Western Turkey and walking through the ruins of the great Basilica of St. John in Ephesus, blown away, obliterated. But there is still in Ephesus a small little church struggling, struggling. The light actually is not gone, it is there, it is there. But the glory of the great Basilica is gone. reminds me of the, the poem of the great poet of empire, Rudyard Kipling. I wish I had it memorized, <laughs> it's beautiful, called Recessional. 
the time when they were having this great celebration of Queen Victoria and all the fleet was arriving and soldiers from all over the world coming. And he speaks of the way in which all this is as nothing, lest we forget. I will come unto you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now that's pretty strong. And so realizing, you know, sometimes this happens when you really hit them with this. He said, well, that's pretty strong. So the Lord said, yet, you know, on the other hand, remember, you know, yet you, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he ends off with thanking them for their fidelity. They're not with the wishy-washer temporizers, the people who give in to the secular, the pagan culture. That's not good. That's not the way to advance the cause of Christ, to water the whiskey. It never works. That's what it says in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 99, or somewhere like that. Don't water the whiskey. Don't, don't be kind of running after the world, the, the Ephesians, to hope they will like us like the way they like Diana of the Ephesians. No, he's, he don't, you're not a, don't become a Nicolaitan. Thank you for not doing that, the Lord says. But do be faithful with love, though, with love together. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And so we come again with a promise. There's a threat, I'm gonna take away your lamp, lest you repent. But there's also a promise. You will get to eat of the tree of life, something that goes right back to Adam and Eve, which is the paradise of God. And at the end of the apocalypse, we see the heavenly Jerusalem, we see the wonders of paradise. And you, to him who conquers, that's used a lot. I'm wearing tonight my, this pectoral cross, which I hardly ever wear because I don't want to damage it. It's kind of soft silver. It has, it was given to me by my sisters when I became a bishop. And in the back of it, it says, in memory of Thomas and, Ignatius, uh, Thomas and Juliana Collins, my mom and dad. But on the front of it, it has these letters. I, it looks like I-C-X-C-N-I-K-A. It's Greek, really. The C is not our C, it's S, their Greek way of writing S. It's Jesus Christus Nika, Jesus Christ conquers. And that's what's written right up there. I-C-X-C Nika, Jesus Christus conquers, Jesus Christ conquers. Jesus is Lord. That's what it's all about, and the Ephesians got it. So good for them despite their fatal flaw of not loving, but they got that. So should we. Over the sanctuary of this cathedral, Jesus Christ conquers. That should be engraved in our hearts as well. It's like uh, Cardinal Ambrosic's Episcopal motto, Jesus Dominus, Jesus is Lord. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. He died and came to life. It is the profound awareness of the resurrection of the Lord, which we are approaching as we go through these final days of Lent. This is what allows us to see that Jesus Christ conquers. That's what's important. Now Smyrna was a rich city and it has a small and struggling bunch of Christians. They don't get hit with the criticism that the Ephesian Christians get. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for, for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. It's when we load ourselves down with richness that we are poor, and when we don't depend on things which are not of the Lord that we are truly rich. Your tribulation, there's suffering, and think of how many of our brothers and sisters are suffering. Think of people we know who are facing the cross of Christ every day. 
in their tribulation. In whole churches, there are parts of the world in which whole dioceses are being attacked, where our brothers and sisters are being massacred as they come to Sunday Mass. Your tribulation. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It seems in, in Smyrna there was a group as well who were, of the, who were not really Jewish. They weren't what they should be. They say they are, but they were not because they were not acting well. They were joining in the persecution. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Not forever, but you'll have it for a while. Thrown into prison unjustly suffering because of the anger of the world, the hatred around them. Many of our brothers and sisters face that. So they need the strength. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It's almost like the words of the Lord to the good thief on the cross. This day you will be with me in paradise. Be faithful, you who face tribulation. Be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. Let's pray the Lord that we might, each one of us, when we face tribulation, whatever it might be, that we might be faithful and see the crown of life before us that gives us strength in our struggles. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death is the one none of us avoids. It comes to us whenever it may be, and they may face it soon in their tribulation after they've been thrown into prison because prison in ancient times was not a punishment. Prison was where they held you until they killed you. So it's a temporary thing leading to death. And so he who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death was close to all of them. The second death is the death of the soul. The second death we have some control over. We don't, none of us escapes, you know, death and taxes. That's what Ben Franklin said, the one thing, two things we know about death and taxes. That's why it's good some people keep a little skull. You can get a little carved one or a little clay one or something to remind you. When you're thinking all kinds of pompous thoughts, remember, you know, just lately I've been sort of planning out where they're gonna, when I get buried. You know, it's, it's a salutary thing to do. Kind of shakes us up a little bit, makes us think of what really matters in this brief life. But the second death is when we die within our own hearts while we're still alive. It's the death of mortal sin, deadly sin. I often think in the apocalypse, there's no greater movie to speak of it than a man for all seasons. And St. Thomas More, the great saint, faced tribulation. His wealth was taken from him, his power was stripped away. He was thrown into the dungeon, into the Tower of London, taken away from his family, tribulation, totally. And he was beheaded by the evil king. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And that must be our message in this world, but, but, God's first. But there's this character, this person in history, Richard Rich, who got to live about 30 years more than Thomas More. Uh, he betrayed him, Judas, he betrayed him. And he was rewarded by being made Lord Lieutenant of Wales or some office like that. The payment for his treason. So there's a famous scene, I don't know whether it actually, a lot of the Manfall season is actually taken from what we know of the transcript of the trial of Thomas More, but 
But Thomas More comes to him after he's just been betrayed by Richard Rich and says, what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and lose his immortal soul? But Richard, for Wales? Really, maybe a little English uh, prejudice there. That second death, Richard Rich died when he betrayed Thomas More. But his body wasn't buried till 20 years, 30 years later. Thomas More's body was buried a few weeks later, radiantly alive. And it's to this day. That's the second death, which is the lake of fire, it says later on. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Pergamon was on a big hill, and it's down on the plain. There was this sort of pagan temple of healing to Asclepius. Up above was the big altar, the throne of Satan, the throne of the altar of Zeus. It's where the military governor had the sword. He could order life or death. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, the big altar of Zeus. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells, they have actually faced martyr. My witness is Martus, martyr, my martyr. Antipas, we don't know anything about him. He's just one of the early Christian martyrs. So they are strong in the face of persecution. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Both of these seem to speak of giving in to the society. Some of them are courageous, like Antipas. He died for Christ. You can't be better than that. But some of you have been Nicolaitans. You're, you know, I can no wonder if you've got so many soldiers in Pergamum ready to kill Antipas, that's a low message to the Christian community. So you can't be surprised that some of them would sort of be Christian, uh, you know, in secret, but bow down before the pagan gods in public, hedging their bets. That's what Nicolaitans means, hedging their bets. And Balaam talked Balak to put a stumbling block, much the same thing. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword that comes from Christ's mouth is much more important than the local governor in his military fortress in Pergamum. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone which no one knows except him who receives it. To him who conquers, Jesus Christus Nika, Jesus Christ conquers. To the one who conquers with Christ, as Antipas did certainly, and others who are strong and don't be wishy-washy in the face of the powers of evil, I will give the hidden manna. This is, again, a little unclear. It goes back to the Old Testament, the manna that fed the people in the wilderness and the desert. It probably also is so many times in this book, it's probably a Eucharistic reference as well. The single thing maybe we should most remember about the apocalypse, it was not read out alone by people in a room somewhere. It was proclaimed at the Eucharist. In fact, the very end of it is like an early Eucharistic celebration. It's like the Lord be with you and with your spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them up. The beginning and the end, both have liturgical dialogues. And a lot of the wording at both ends and here throughout relates to the sacrament. So it's probably the hidden manna is a reference to the Eucharist, which they would be receiving about a half an hour later in the house church where this was proclaimed. And I will give them a white stone. This is uh, probably, in those days you have, the, you could get a, the tickets to voting tablets, like little ostraca, things like that. Uh, ostraca, they were... Um, little stones or little pieces of pottery, broken pottery, were used as a ticket to get in um, to something important, or they were used also things like for voting and stuff like that. So I'm gonna give you the white stone. I'm gonna give you the ticket to heaven. 
I always think it nice. My very first, the first time I was a, a bishop, uh, well, 22 years ago, oh my, it's so fast. Uh, I was, the, the bishop before me named the re priest retirement home, the Caillou Blanc. It's a French diocese, uh, Saint Paul. He named the priest retirement home, the White Stone. So, <laughs> ticket to heaven retirement home. I always thought that's kind of a nice apocalyptic touch. I don't think we're gonna do, <laughs> you know, good for him. But anyway, I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows except him who receives it. So be faithful, you're gonna get a ticket to heaven with your name on it. You'll get a pass. That's a reward better than being destroyed in the earlier part. And finally, the last of these letters this evening. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the Lord, not Caesar over in Rome, not the local governor. This is the Lord we are willing to live for and die for. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Your latter works exceed the first, so they're getting better. So he thanks them for that. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her a time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. This probably refers to someone, again, like the Nicolaitans, some leader in the church in Thyatira, who is like the false apostles in Ephesus, is leading the people astray, and it seems to be leading them to kind of give up, their, you know, kind of hedge and dodge with their faith. That's why, like, she's named Jezebel after the Old Testament, the, the, the queen who was persecuting Elijah. And so he's saying, no. You don't go that way. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. I will give to each of you as your works deserve. We have to live with integrity. It's not enough to say, Lord, 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 or say, Lord, Lord, and go off and start fooling around with the Nicolaitans, you know, being, no, no. Live what you preach. Your works Remember the sign of the cross on our forehead, on our lips, in our hearts, our head, heart, and hands. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned to call what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay upon any other, any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. This makes us think that maybe one of the things that was being used to lead them astray, the deep things of Satan, it was probably what we would call a kind of new agey kind of teaching. I will show you the deep things. Gnosticism, Gnosticism, Gnostics. This secret knowledge. So she was saying, fear not, I will give you the secret things of Satan. I will show you. That's, we still have it today. Go into any bookstore, you find rack upon rack of that stuff that Gnosticism is alive and well. The idea that we're like little floating minds where the bodies are kind of extra. In fact, you can kind of switch them and that's, that stuff. That's probably what she was into. He who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received power from my father. And I will give him the morning star the sign of Christ, the morning star, first light of the day. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So St. John is a prophet and a writer of God's word. Hear what he is saying. This is read out to the people at the Eucharist. And they're called to listen, be thankful, and repent. Our life in Christ is not a superficial thing. It grips, it shakes, it fills us with life and joy, but it also 
grips us. And I don't think we've ever had a time to lead a superficial life in Christ. He's talking about the real thing. These people will be having their heads chopped off. They're being thrown into prison. They were in the midst of a corrupt society, almost as corrupt as the one we're in, with wacky kind of strange things going on, the Gnostic things, the secret things of Satan, strange things you can't believe. They're all there. And so you needed to have Christians with their heads screwed on the right way. Thinking what's real, dealing with the real, not with all these crazy things that they were being swept away and all these forces all around them. No time for superficiality if you're living in that world. Satan was shooting with real bullets, not blanks. And so he is today. That's why I suggest that at the end of Mass, we pray the prayer of St. Michael. Believe me, this world, we need a cold water in our face. We need a slap to wake us up. That's why I also like Tolkien's stuff, The Lord of the Rings. He who had fought through the Battle of the Somme in 1916 and saw evil face to face, you saw it also in the elegant world of the English universities and everywhere else. He knew what he was talking about. Evil is resilient. We need to be strong in heart. We just don't have the luxury of being superficial Christians, dipping our toe into Christianity. You just dip it in, dip it out. That's why also Tolkien wrote, all life, all glory, all romance and life is found before the blessed sacrament. That's what gave him strength, as it does for us too. For the Lord gives us the hidden manna that keeps us alive in the midst of the desert and gives us joy. And so the risen Lord says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first of the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews that are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the word of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your, faith, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. It is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed of those who commit adultery with her. I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. He who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received power from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.